Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. This is ATP 520, broadcasting from Tokyo, Japan and Bangkok, Thailand. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio, as ever, by Michael Waits. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing super, Graham. How are you doing? Doing awesome. We have had a stonking couple of weeks. We've got the report out. We're going to talk about that Asia matters. We're going to talk about the Asian tech startup ecosystem and all the good data and insights that come with it. Part one of the report is in the hands of the listeners as we speak. If you haven't got it already, you can go to asiatechpodcast.com slash Asia matters where you can get the report. We're going to be talking about the latest insights and part two, which is coming out this week. So part one was all about the mega cities. Part two is all about the evolving startup ecosystems across Asia. And what are the big stories that are going to be, you know, embracing our headlines in 2018? Let's have a look at what's coming up, what's driving it. What do you need to know? What are the meta trends that you need to be conscious of in 2018 in Asia? Whether you're a startup founder or you are an investor or you're an outsider from Asia, outside of Asia looking in. What do you need to know? So to help us unpack all of that, Michael's going to cast his expert analysis and opinion over the Asian startup ecosystem. Starting with this, Michael, I have for you a quote. Give it to me. Yeah, this is from none other than Reid Hoffman, who's the CEO of LinkedIn. And the Masters of Scale podcaster as well, right? Yeah, that's right. A guy who knows a lot. He knows a lot. And he's as connected and he should be pretty damn well connected owning LinkedIn. This is what he said. This is why Asia matters. Ladies and gentlemen, beyond Silicon Valley itself, I believe that the next Silicon Valley is undoubtedly China. Shenzhen is just one of several cities in China that blow other contenders for the next Silicon Valley out of the water. I'm not going to do the last bit. He says, I'm going to drop that in a minute. But on basis of what he said already, saying that the next Silicon Valley is undoubtedly China. How do we stand on that? Agree, disagree, or is the jury out? Well, I mean, we completely agree, right? That the next Silicon Valley, or the next six or the next 20 Silicon Valleys, however you want to talk about it, could be in China or already are in China. Maybe that's the point is that it already is right. in China, right? Whether it's Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen or Wuhan or Jinan or any of the cities that we talked about last week. But I think the, I think the final part of this quote is the fact is China's tech industry is evolving so rapidly, it catches veterans off guard. Right. And I think to a certain extent, this is the most important part of this quote. Like we said, like Reed Hoffman is super respected, very well connected, no pun intended, um, and should have all the information in the world at his fingertips if he wants it. And, th- and maybe that's the point is maybe people outside of the region, outside of Asia, don't really want that information or just aren't interested. This is the myopia that we talk about all the time, hmm. okay, is that for anybody who's been in Asia, and people have said this to us, right, all last week as the report was coming out and people got sort of the sneak preview a lot of the feedback we got was, this is really amazing information. And it's even more information for people that don't live here. This is one of those things where people read the report and said, I knew that. Yeah. I didn't understand the scale of it. But I knew that for sure, right? And this is one of those things where if you're in like a corporate meeting and there's like a big problem and you're talking about the problem and then somebody has a solution for it and someone says, oh, I knew that like five months ago, that person gets fired, right? Because why <laughs> didn't you tell me? 
But this is the same kind of thing. Being People that. in Asia are not caught off guard. Like you can tell this, and I mentioned, I, I've said this before, like this kind of thing really makes me mad because mm. it doesn't catch anybody off guard if they've only been paying a modicum of attention. But why should it make you mad? I mean, why get wound up about that? I mean, that's just him, right? D- does that have any kind of impact on our But only because, it said, well, it's only because it said which, with such authority. Yeah. Right? And for those of us who are in the midst of it, right? So for a guy like William Babine, and, and he is a tech industry veteran, yep. he's not caught off guard. No. Okay. No. And, and even somebody who like was part of the building and we interviewed, right? A guy named Shlomo Frund, right? Also, not exactly like the most well-known person globally, but a great guy and a great guy that we spoke to. He's not caught off guard either. He would actually argue that Beijing is better than Shanghai. But again, the fact that there's a conversation going on about that is important. But the not the anger, but sort of the disappointment is like I don't disagree with the first part of this. The fact is China's tech industry is evolving so rapidly, and mm. that's where the next Silicon Valley is but it's not catching anybody who's informed off guard. And I guess that gets back to what we were talking about last week, which is just the fact that Asia matters, right? And I really just want people to start paying attention to this because, you know, we, we talked about this in our, in our first podcast about this, right? They're going to wake up one day and they're going to say, when did that happen? And how come nobody told me? Hmm. And that's the being caught off guard part. Nobody who's paying attention is caught off guard. Well, there's a couple of stories, isn't there, that we want to share today. That first one, which you mentioned is that whole story about, you know, if you control the media, if you control the narrative about startups and about ecosystems and about what is cool and what is important, then you can also control where the focus of the world's attention is, right? That's where that word hegemony comes in again, right? It's just like the cool kids at school, you know, they control the narrative. So they say, these are the in kids, these are the out kids. And it's no different from, how it plays out in the startup ecosystem, right? Because, you know, if one ecosystem can produce media and movies about, you know, the social network and lionize people like Mark Zuckerberg, then it's difficult for everybody else to get an edge in, right? So people think, oh, I didn't know about Jack Maher or I didn't know, who who knows who the the founder or the CEO of Tencent is, right? Because- Nobody knows, yeah, exactly. Right, everybody knows- Facebook and everybody knows Mark Zuckerberg. That's the point. That's the hegemony, isn't it? And that's why you get people say, like you said earlier, it's like, you know, when did this happen? And, you know, why wasn't I told? So that's one of the stories we want to talk about today and how that's shifting. The second story as well, I mean, you talk about China being the next potential, uh, well, you know, talk about 15 to 20 Silicon Valleys in China. That's something we talked about the last time, right? So, that being the home, but also how that's changing as well. So, you know, if you're just focusing on China, you might miss out because I'm sure as Michael's going to unpack for us later in the podcast, this whole idea about risk capital seeking outsized returns and the outsized returns are no longer in China, right? So the money right. is coming out of China into Southeast Asia. So we want to talk about that as well, because that's the big story, isn't it? Is that yeah, and I just want, that's I just want to, a major driver? It is. And I want to make one more point about Shenzhen, right, which is one of the things that Reid Hoffman mentioned. In 1980, population had – I mean the population of Shenzhen was 30,000 people. Wow. Okay. Cause in, and in 1979, it changed from just being kind of like a little town into city status. 
And now in 2017, it had almost 20 million people. I think we published 17 and a half last week, if my memory serves me correctly. But that's the point that I, that's one of the points that I wanted to make is how can you not know? How can you be caught off guard by a city that used to be 30,000 is now 20 million people? Yeah. Do you think people know where Shenzhen is? No idea. (laughs) I I don't think anybody has any idea. Outside of Asia, right? Nobody has a clue. I think, you know, again, it's like if you take the, and I shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. And if you take the typical, you know, American and you put a map of the United States in there and just tell them, okay, show me where, you know, Texas is, they'll probably get it. But if you say like, tell me where Kansas is, they probably won't. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, show me where Nebraska is. By the way, by the way, Michael is, he does have an American passport, so he's qualified to say that. He's not a Canadian speaking on behalf of North America, so. Even if I would get flamed. Anybody would get mad. No. All right. Let's start with this. uh, We've got a slide in the report, which is a great starting point, which is the the slide showing how much the startup investment has grown in the last year. And it, it headlines with Asian financing grows 117%. So it's doubled in a year. It's gone from 32.7 to 70.8 billion, which is interesting because that is only 5% behind North America. What's going on? How can we understand that? That's a major closing of the gap, isn't it? And it's a major increase in investment in Asia. How do you yeah. see it? When you're on the ground, you are actually out there, boots on the ground. What's going on? Well, so what did our friend Mikhail Abdullah say, right? There are about $50 trillion of investable assets, and there's right. been a dramatic shift of wealth from like traditional channels to online channels. There's also been a dramatic shift of investment, right, from listed companies into unlisted companies. Mm. And I think one of the things that's happening is people see the success, the outside returns that happened in the United States, and not so much as in Europe, in the startup space. And they're actually making bigger bets here because they figure if they can get in earlier, Right. And make bigger bets, then those bigger bets will pay off even more. And there's going to be more power and more concentration of that power in Asia than there is in the United States. And I think that happens over the next like 15 or so years. And I don't think and I, I don't think it's a big surprise for us, but I do think it's going to be a gigantic surprise. Right. For those industry veterans that Reed Hoffman is talking about. I think they will be caught mm. way off guard. Okay. But if you, if you notice, right, so that number that says it's only 5% behind the United yeah. States or 5% behind the West. The other interesting thing is that the deal size, and I think we touched on this a little bit, the deal size is twice the size almost because the number of deals that are getting funded are almost half. In so Asia. by definition, this, in Asia, right? So the right. deal size is going to be big. And I think that's because people are really doubling down. On, on individual startups that they like. And you're also seeing a massive capital shift. And I think we talked about this a little bit as well, right? From Chinese companies or even companies that were investing in China and then encouraging those Chinese companies where they're no longer seeing or expecting to see outsized returns. Mm-hmm. And they're investing a lot of that money in the rest of Asia. And a lot of it's actually happening in Southeast Asia. And, mm-hmm. and I think we should probably bring up this concept we talked about it a little bit, but let's talk about it in more detail now. Right. So Mikhail says in investable assets, right? But what are those investable assets? You want to split it into two categories, right? Risk capital and non-risk capital. And what's the difference, right? Do you, like, do you know, do you have an idea in your mind what that is? And, and I'll go into it, but I'm just curious from your perspective what that is. Right. I mean, I know because, you know, I qualified as a financial it, advisor years ago, so I, I'm aware of it. But yeah, I mean, so do let's, it, let's, let's, speak let's to me. Start right? from zero. 
let's go into this, right? right? So first of all, risk capital is not like five guys in suits or, you know, four guys in suits and a couple of ladies in suits on a TV show trying to pressure some startup person, male or female, into making a mistake so they don't get funded. Yeah, we talk, talk about, about this a lot, but I want to make a point. Yeah, I'm talking about Shark Tank because I think that's entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's not about, like, capital allocation or risk allocation. It's not explaining anything to anybody. You don't learn anything from watching it. Like, nobody, nobody understands the difference between risk capital and capital. Let's talk about capital first, right? So if you're running a big public company or if you're running a big family enterprise, you have cash flow. You have investable assets. And you need to make a decision for asset allocation purposes into what am I going to invest my free cash flow, right? So think about a retail outlet. Should I get into e-commerce or should I build another mall? Mm. Now, building another mall doesn't seem like a great um, investment if you're only earning 12%. And if you invest in e-commerce and it turns into Alibaba, right, or it turns into Lazada, the only problem is that the likelihood of it turning into a Lazada, yeah. this is your risk return, is relatively low based on statistics around what happens to most startups, right? And we've gone through this a bunch of times. But like statistically speaking, you know, 80% or 90% of startups fail. That's zero. That's your return is zero. So just imagine the conversation for someone who's, who's running a big um, retail conglomerate and you say, okay, you can invest $50 million and we'll build the best e-commerce business in the world. And they say, that's awesome. What's my potential expected return? And you're like, I, I, I don't know. Mm. Anywhere between know, zero and 100 million. And, and infinity. And like, <laughs> you don't know, right? But I don't know is the wrong answer for somebody who's built a business right. from scratch and who understands like a 12 to 13% IRR because that's what they want to continue to do. It's a preservation of wealth question and an asset allocation question. What percentage of the free income that, I mean, the free in cash flow that you have, what do you want to invest in things that could go to zero versus what you're going to invest in capital preservation, 12%, 13% IRR. That's capital. Mm-hmm. Risk capital is a much smaller percentage of your investment portfolio and just saying, this could go to zero, and I'm pretty happy with that. The only problem is that most people don't want to make those investments, and that's this migration from capital to risk capital, right? And remember, the other difference is, that normally when you invest money where you have an expected IRR and you can document it and you can do pro forma calculations on what your forward expected income is or cash flow is, you know that business. You're familiar with that business, right? So again, if you're in the hotel business, you know if I build the same hotel in another city with the same population growth, with the same demographics, I'm likely to earn the same return. But plus, I own the real estate that it sits on and I have some expected return. But if I build something in the ether, I really don't know. Mm. Right. So that's capital allocated to like traditional asset classes and like physical fixed asset investments. Risk capital is you invest in things you don't necessarily know or understand. It's outside your normal scope of business. And there's a much greater risk of potential failure or just really low or non, what I call non, non outsized returns. Mm. That, that, that's the real difference, right? But to invest in a startup, particularly at its earliest stages, that's the riskiest capital. It used to be that hedge funds were like the biggest risks, right? Because they were earning the biggest outsized returns. We talk about this though, right? The biggest return is going to be where there's what I like to call an information arbitrage. Does that make sense? Yep. Where you know something that somebody else doesn't know, right? 
yeah, or you have access to that data and you have an ability to analyze that information in a way that nobody else can, right? And that's kind of what we're trying to talk about with investments into startups in Asia, right? And this is why there's this shift from China itself investing in itself and external people like, you know, Naspers and other big companies investing in startups in China. And then the Chinese themselves coming out and saying, you know what, we're going to invest in Lazada, which is in Southeast Asia. Okay. That's why that capital shift is taking place. Because for the longest period of time, nobody was paying attention to China. And there was an information arbitrage there. Nobody paid attention. Mm-hmm. But now that not everybody's there, but there's just so much competition, right? So in multiple ways, that arbitrage, it's kind of been what we call arbed out. More people, more people participate, more investments are made, more information is um, distributed and disseminated, more people look at it. Big companies like Alibaba, Tencent, WeChat, all these big companies get developed, and then everybody looks for the next thing. And while they're doing that, the smart money is actually moving out of there into a place where there's less information flow, where it's slightly more opaque, where there have been fewer investments and an arbitrage still exists. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing. That's a paradigm change for what we're seeing moving investments from south from china into southeast asia and the chinese are leading that we kind of touched on that last week when we talked about the asia matters concept but now we're touching on it even more because that's where people that really understand where to put their risk capital you know in the in the public markets we talk about front running right in a way we talk about it in sports too the things that are already already winning mm. you kind of Put your money down on those things, right? But in the private markets, there's no concept of front running. You just invest earlier than everybody else with the expectation that people will follow you. There was a great, you know, for people, again, that participate in the public markets, one of the things that we all used as a tool was Bloomberg. And everybody used to have a Bloomberg header on top of their email. So Bloomberg had this really useful email and chat system. And one of my favorite investors, actually based in Singapore, without naming the government entity, that they worked for used to have this great quote that sat atop his Bloomberg header. And it said, the greatest en- investors anticipate the anticipations of others. <laughs> okay, but that's what this whole point of right. that information arbitrage, right? It's like you're anticipating what other people are going to do, and yeah. they've already anticipated it, right? So you're going to front run their investment. And that's what people that have been investing in Southeast Asia have been doing for the past five years. And now that that arbitrage, the information arbitrage, and also the investment arbitrage, and the outsized return arbitrage is kind of coming out of China, it's all moving into Southeast Asia, I think. Now, we haven't talked about India at all. We can get to that later on in the conversation. Exactly. That's another official together, isn't it? It is, but I think that, I think that's a really good way to explain this difference between there's a ton of capital, but a lot of that capital hasn't moved yet into that category of risk capital. Mm. And I think that tells you something, again, we'll address this sort of at the end of this conversation too, but that tells you something about the maturation process of the ecosystem here. I mean, one of the reasons why we talk about this is because most of the world yet hasn't figured out that Asia matters. This is the introduction that we're making to everybody, right? And the reason why that there's this immaturity, even though there's rapid growth in the ecosystem, is because the information dissemination so there's has not been done yet. And it still means there's the potential for that information arbitrage, for investment arbitrage, and also for outsized returns. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, I tell you, I mean, that's a really good explanation just so I can understand is that basically, you know, it's all very well having trillions of dollars of assets 
in a market, but if that's not allocated as risk capital, it doesn't then fund this generation of entrepreneurs coming through because why would granddad invest his you know family fortune in a startup which he knows very little about when he he knows he can get 12 percent on a you know a shopping center right because that's his background and he's done that all his life right and that's the family wealth so that wealth may be there in asia but it's what's happening to the risk capital that really determines markets and what we're seeing yeah is this can movement I, out of, out yeah. of china specifically right Right. And let's make an analogy market. yeah, into, into these markets. Let's make an analogy to the West that people can understand, right? So when, and let's go all the way back into the earliest development of sort of the investment cycle way back in the United States, right? If you look at the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers, where did they make their money, right? Steel and oil. And when their second generation or even third generation came to the patriarchs and said, look, we should take some of this money that we're making and we should invest it outside. They were like, okay, what are my expected returns? Again, I, I don't know, but it looks like this is going to be the new thing, whatever that new thing was. And they're like, that's fine. We'll buy more oil assets because we know what the returns are there. Or we'll build another steel mill. Hmm. Or we'll buy another steel mill. We'll consolidate the steel thing. That's the same thing that's happening, you know, not just in all of Asia in general, but in Southeast Asia in particular. People are saying, look, I understand how this business works. This is standard operating practice for this generation. The idea is we know what the expected returns are because there's still room in the economy for growth yeah. in standard places. So it takes like the existing, the current generation to say, you know, dad, granddad, grandmom, we've got to be able to take some of this capital and reallocate it. And it's just starting to happen, right? That's an information arbitrage as well, though, isn't it? Because they know something that other people don't know. Like they've seen the future or they've worked with a startup or they've got their hands dirty working for some e-commerce company, right? They've seen it and that's the information that they have that the rest of the market doesn't know. They do. And look, we have examples of this in people that spoke about this for um, Asia Tech Podcast Stories, right? Harprem Dua's family runs a business, okay? And he's always been in this concept of, I want to outperform. He says yeah. this in the interview. I want to outperform the family. I, I, I want to show them that I can do the same thing, that I can be an entrepreneur like they were and like my grandparents were, my great-grandparents were, and that I can do it. And I can do it in a different realm, not inside the family business, not develop something that we've already done. That's capital investment, and that's great. But what he wanted to do was take risk capital. And he's done it, and he's done it twice or more than that successfully. And that's the whole point is that that generation, maybe it's third generation, maybe it's fourth generation, is starting to do that. And you're right. That's the information arbitrage. So risk capital is one of the six core components we talk about as creating a successful startup ecosystem in Asia. Because you, you can have risk capital, but unless you have the infrastructure to make that capital work, you ain't going to create a successful startup ecosystem. And in a way, we're looking across all these cities, the mega cities we talked about in the last, in ATP 510, you know, a lot of them now have hmm. a growing base of capitals and increasingly now they have risk capital. But, you know, do they have all of these six elements? So maybe we can talk a little bit about these and how they create ecosystems and, you know, really looking across Asia, which cities are getting it right? Because it's not just the city with the most risk capital. Is it? You've got to have all of these elements together for that to work. So do you want to yeah, go through that list and just have a quick look at those? 
What on the city side or just on this whole list of what is really important for a startup city, right? I mean, look, we talked about risk capital. We also talk about role models and accelerators, right? And then the events and the talent and the co-working space. And I think all these components are actually really important for building the right cities. And I want to make the point again. I just want to bang it home. And that is that people have actually asked us what's the best country for this right. type of startup or that type of startup. And I, I just want to go back to this concept of, one of the things we found is that the reality is that it's not so country specific and that sort of country analyses are a little bit old. Everybody does it. But finding the right city to build something where there's a specific problem or a specific big problem, right, <clears throat> that's, um, that, that's evident in that city, but that's also obvious for the rest of a region is also really important. So build it in one place first and then export it to the rest of a region or the rest of the world is actually really important. I want to talk a little bit about role models, right? Because I think it's really important. And Can we, just before we get there, I've got a question about go. the access to capital as well, because this is going to come up. We'll talk about some of the listener questions as well towards the end of the show. Sure. But I know this is going to be a listener question. So I want your opinion on this before we jump into role models is if you were to have a look at the slide we just talked about, which is Asian financing grows 117%. Key figures on there, the headline stats, Asia 70.8 billion, North America 74.5. So only 5% behind. Neck and neck, it's going to catch up, pass within the next couple of years. Obviously, markets change, Easily. but it's there. I mean, there's not much of a difference. But then contrast that with a couple of slides later we've got the data from the startup genome report which is an authoritative report that's well researched they've gone about with their own hypothesis and philosophy as well their manifesto and they've ranked the top 10 cities in the world for access to startup funding and bear in mind the data that we just looked at asia north america neck and neck in their top 10 shanghai and beijing feature at number three and number five and that's it for asia nothing else so you know only two representatives out of 10 it doesn't sort of add up there's a big gap here how do we explain that well i mean look i think part of the issue with some of these studies is you know what is their access to information this is part this gets back to the information arbitrage that we discussed earlier right without making disparaging comments about anybody the idea is you know, who are they asking? How are they accumulating their data? Do they have people permanently on the ground in any one of those cities to be able to, you know, to be able to actually figure out that that's really the case? Right? So what are the what are the rest of the cities that are that are listed there? In the top 10, you have. Yeah. OK, so let's just go through this list quickly then. So these are the top 10 cities according to access to capital. Silicon Valley, obviously number one. New York City, Shanghai three, London four, Beijing five. Wait, so can I just back up? So New yep. York City, they're saying, has better access to capital than Singapore. Yep. And Singapore's sure, not does. even in the top 10, Michael. It's not in the top 10. But so New York City, they're saying through Union Street Ventures or whatever, has more access to capital than a startup in Singapore. Right. It's just insane. Yeah. I mean, it may have, it may have a, a lively business scene, but... A startup scene by comparison i don't know i mean i don't yeah know i mean i just i just so so tell me in new york who invested in alibaba at its earliest stages <laughs> don't know. i don't know either like i don't understand how that can possibly be true and i think that i think that one of the reasons is that there's a bias right you and i talk about our own biases all the time yeah i think there's a western bias 
And I, and again, going all the way back to how we started this with Reed Hoffman, right? That whole concept of, you know, the, the industry veterans are going to be caught off guard. Well, I think they're going to be caught off guard if they're looking in the wrong direction, right? right? I mean, yeah. you're always going to get hit in the head with the ball if you're not watching the ball when it's thrown to you. And I think that having New York in any position that's above Singapore, sure, Wall Street's there, but in Singapore, you have Timasek, you have GIC, you have some of the largest banks and finances in the world, mm-hmm. and there's and there's massive government support as yeah. well, whether it's through the NRF or the MDA or the IDA or any of the programs that they have there. I, I don't know, like I can't imagine why, and the only reason why is I think that there's an embedded bias into anybody that's doing a study about that, and that whole concept is, Who's actually making that decision about what that access to capital really means? Yeah. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it's totally fair. I mean, it's a key theme, isn't it? That's the hegemony again, isn't it? It's that, well, you know, it, it's all very well if that's from, you know, I don't know where these guys are based. I don't want to knock them. I think they do some great research, but there's a do, natural bias in everything that people do with us as well. Yes, absolutely. Look, we have our own biases, right? But we are pretty open and outspoken about them. We live in Asia, yeah. right? It's like ranking. It's like if I do a ranking of the best cities in the United States to live in, and I live in New York, and I have, you know, I own three apartments in New York, and my kids go to school in New York, and do you know what I mean? And I went to NYU, and I then I did yeah. my graduate degree in Columbia. I'm going to be pretty biased to living on the East Coast in the United States and saying New York is the best city in the country. Yeah, Los Angeles may be better. Like I, I don't know. I don't live there. But I'm just saying your bias is going to really determine how you're going to say what the best thing is and what the access to capital is. But the other question is, who do you know in Shanghai or yeah. who do you know in Singapore that's going to Shenzhen. tell you or Shenzhen that's going to say, actually, yeah. when you go through and do this report or do the research, that there's actually a ton of capital here that's available. You just don't know that. But if you don't know the right people to ask, if it's random – you know, like if your college roommate lives in Shenzhen or lives in Shanghai, but they're in the legal, they're a lawyer, they're a doctor or something, they're not going to know that. And they may not know the person who knows. So it just really depends on how you go and get that information. And it's expensive. Look, the people that do these reports, if they really want to do them well, have to travel a lot and to get the best yeah. info. But that gets back to the info arbitrage we talked about earlier. I think yeah. it's real. Yeah. And the the natural weakness of being based in Silicon Valley, as much as it's a strength, is there's the the assumption that the world comes to you, isn't it? Because it has done for so many years up until now. And, you know, if you're writing a report based out of Silicon Valley, which this is, right? Right. Anyway, so let's move on. Let's talk about role models. Because I think that sort of follows the theme as well. I mean, it, there's a bias there as well, isn't there? I mean, until now, if you ask who is the... You know, if you ask a bunch of entrepreneurs who their role models are and they're going to reach for what the media, you know, parades in front of them on a regular basis, you're going to get Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, maybe. Mark yeah, and, and Jack Ma and stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of that, you know, especially in a way. I mean, maybe that's why it's easy to say that Silicon Valley is number one because all the role models are there, right? But, you know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That in that sense, who knows who the founder of Tencent is or who knows, you know, you go down any of the list of the 10 most valuable comp- private companies in the world. Four of them are Chinese. You know, I, I don't think any people outside of China could name who those four Chinese companies were and who their founders were, right? 
Right. And I think that there's a little bit of a deification for people that like kind of already have success. Right. So you go to like Mikitani in Japan and you ask him, you know, tell me today how I should build a startup because you built Rakuten 20 right. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's great that that guy's a billionaire, but to be fair, the environment in which he built that business is completely different. I think Jack Ma is kind of the same story, right? The domestic market into which he built Alibaba was just completely different than it is today. And while he may have some certain tenets and principles that can be useful today, I think there are people at a level just below the size of Alibaba who've worked just as hard and yet maybe understand more about how to grow a company, how to fund a company, you know, how to build a finance department, how to do viral videos or whatever it is that's going to help your country company grow that Jack Ma has no idea about today because it's completely different. Mm. And that the risk metrics that he was looking at back in the day and maybe the support that he got from his government, and I don't know because I wasn't there, were different. But it's that deification of people. Like the real role models for me um, are people that are really in the trenches, right? So go ask the guys from like Carousel. They built this company from nowhere, mm-hmm. right? Go ask Tiwa York, a name that like most people outside of Thailand haven't heard of. Tiwa's built multiple companies, Sanuk, right, Kaidi. These are really big companies. He struggles every single day with how to make things bigger, how to exist in not just in a regional company but in a, as part of a global organization, how to build that, how to get people to exist and build companies online. These are things that he's dealing with every single day. And how does he use the knowledge that he's gaining from overseas to build like the proper culture inside of his companies? But those are the real role models to me. And I think, again, if you go back to Mark Cuban, which goes back to the Shark Tank thing, and use that guy as a role model for his success in broadcast.com, which yeah. he sold to, I can't even remember, Yahoo for something like $4 billion dollars. Like, that's great, but I don't think it's super relevant for today. And I think I see the same pattern being formed today when people talk about who are those role models. And I think those role models are like at a slightly lower level, not from a skill perspective, but from a fame perspective. Like, I think Jacob Leikegaard is a great role model, mm. right? Um, a guy who really struggled, Casper Bojensen as well, a great role model. Like, I took nothing and turned it into something and I'm still doing it every single day and learning about how to grow, learning about how to manage people, learning about how to grow as a manager of people as well. Those are the real role models. But the reason why those guys and gals become really important is because when they do succeed and when they do kind of monetize their businesses or even exit, which is something we can talk about later, they reinvest back in the ecosystem. Right. So one of the things that the PayPal guys did, whether it's Peter Thiel or Elon Musk or that whole team of people did was they went out and not only did they start new companies, but they invested in new companies as well. And that's why those role models actually in the end become really important. It's not necessarily what they did 10 years ago. It's their ability to take their capital, right, turn it into risk capital and put it right back into the ecosystem. Well, it was the ATP voting that we had last year, which touched upon in this report as well where we asked people to name who's contributed most to their startup ecosystem and it was interesting because the people that got ranked the highest and we got a a fair number of votes we got 2861 people vote from across asia these were all registered linkedin users as well so you know these weren't just nobodies or people setting up fake accounts these are all you know verifiable voters 2861 people voted and what was interesting is the role models effectively that they were 
um, trumping for, you know, the benefit of their startup ecosystem were people that we didn't know about. Um, in, right. in a sense, these were, you know, we thought people were going to vote for people like Jack Maher or the founder of Tencent, whoever he is, please tweet us at Asia Tech Pod because, you know, I keep forgetting his name. And so do I. <laughs> he's a pretty important guy. And I live in Asia. So there you go. Um, the people that they came out with, people like Kenny Thing or William Balbean, Adi Bramantia, Casey Lau, Andrew Liu, that list, as you can see in the report, it's just fascinating because, like you said, these are people in the trenches, right? And in a way, I think that's more inspirational. It's all very well listening to somebody like Mark Cuban, where they say, yeah, you've, you've got to never give up. And, you know, sweat equity is the best equity or, you know, sport is business and business is sport. These are fine, but that's entertainment. If people say that kind of stuff, what do you actually learn from it? I'm sort of very skeptical whether you actually learn anything from that kind of you know, those platitudes that these, you know, celebrity entrepreneurs come out with. I think, you know, what you really learn is when you, let's say you listen to the story of Kenny Thing or William Balbean and you find out how they've done their thing and built their businesses and helped other people build their business. I think those are the, that's what we need more of, right? Don't you think, Michael, is that that's the kind of stories we need to share rather than, okay, here's Richard Branson. He came from a, a rich family. You know, he his family banked at Coots, which also the bankers to the Queen of England, right? Okay, so already we're dealing with somebody who's born out of privilege, right? I mean, you know, Orville is a great life, he's a billionaire, et cetera, et cetera, but you'll, you'll never be him. When I think, you know, you listen to those stories, it could be a bit disempowering, isn't it? But if you listen to somebody just like you, who's been successful, for me, that's far more motivating. I don't know, maybe I'm looking for different things, but I think that maybe we're a little bit tired of that whole sort of, you know, celebrity entrepreneur thing I mean, it's great entertainment but does it really help create the conversation about what you need to do to be successful in asia no and look one of the points that a guy and i'm trying to find the exact quote right because i ran by this today one of the guys that i like a lot this guy warren low right who's in malaysia he's very um you know deeply committed to sort of building not just the malaysian tech startup ecosystem but the entire ecosystem in the region you know one of the things that he says is if you're really busy like promoting yourself, if you're busy promoting like how great you are, then you're probably not so busy building something really big and helping other people to do that. And I really loved what he said today um, on one of his posts, and I can't remember which part of social media he did it on, but I just thought it was great that, that that's the concept, right? That's really the information sharing. In other words, the people that are in the weeds being the real role models, right, that people really look up to that are just creating value every day and then putting that value back into the ecosystem, those are the people to whom we should be paying attention. And it's not guys like, you know, Mark Cuban who are just out promoting themselves. And think about this, Elon Musk too. He doesn't do a great job of promoting himself because he's too busy Hmm. building stuff. And it's the same thing for people in this region, right? The people that are really out there building stuff day to day. Like Shannon is a great example of this. Here's a person who could be out promoting own self-interest, but isn't. It's out just like stomping for the ecosystem every single day and putting back in and putting back in and putting back in and taking very little for themselves. And that's actually really important to me. And as a role model, people like that are really important. They take whatever they have and they put it right back into the system. And that's what the role model – that's the importance of it too because it fuels the growth, right? It's that mm -hmm. virtuous circle that we always like to talk about. And that's really important to me. Yeah. In a way, that sort of is part and parcel of that whole risk capital thing as well, because, you know, it takes those people to pioneer, in a way, that path for other 
people to risk their capital, right? Because, you know, if somebody was successful in business and then took their money out and risked it on another entrepreneur, that creates a story and a role model for people to follow, doesn't it? Because you don't necessarily want to be the first guy ever to, you know, invest as an angel in your industry, right? Because you want to look around and see if it actually works and if there's a track record, right? You don't want to necessarily be a complete pioneer because it's extremely high risk. It's almost reckless, isn't it? In a way, so, you're, and you're alone as well. Nobody wants to invest alone. No well, that, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. So it's an option now, isn't it? When you've got these people doing it, that, especially in Asia, we talked earlier about that risk tap, risk capital being a maturation. It's an evolution, isn't it? You, you require generations of entrepreneurs to come through just in the same way. You know, you go back to Silicon Valley, you've got the Hewlett's and the Packards, right? You know, that yeah. that was a long time ago, what, 40, 50 plus years ago, these guys were yeah. kicking off. So, you know, that's what it takes two generations, three generations of entrepreneurs to come through. And we're only just starting to see the tip of that in Asia. So, you know, what people think when they look around and say, oh, well, you don't have the role models. Well, it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time for people to learn from the generation before them, right? It can't just sort of, they can't jumpstart the whole thing. They can't, you know, go straight to having all these amazing entrepreneurs when there was nobody there before them, right? No, it just it doesn't just spring out of nowhere. Okay, so that's role models. Um, I want to talk about the next one because this is a sort of a slightly controversial subject, the importance of accelerators in Asia. Well, what's your thoughts on this? Are these a necessary part of an ecosystem or do you think they're actually because you know there's been some criticism in recent times some experts say i can use in the fox news style that accelerators <laughs> aren't actually doing anything and i know i mean there's been examples of people who've got into and set up accelerators in southeast asia and pulled out because they just weren't you know the model just didn't work is is it the accelerator model is it timing or what do we need accelerators what are your thoughts on this because you've worked a lot with accelerators and seen it from both sides of the table um, look, I think that every market gets institutionalized at some point, for lack of a better term. And I think having an accelerator model, whether it's Y Combinator or 500 startups that run accelerator programs globally, right, or in the region, if you look at, let's go back to our, um, sorry, our awards, right? So we asked the whole market, who are the best accelerators? And in the top group of accelerators, you know, you have Impact Tech, you have Muradi, you have China Accelerator, you have Magic, and um, and some other places like that. Even Jungle Ventures, sort of with their early stage investment stuff, runs a sort of acceleration program. And I think part of the reason why they do that is, you know, are they necessary? It's a really good question. But the idea is that you have all these startup founders who've never built their own companies before, but they've also never spoken to investors or institutional money before. And to a certain extent, they need to be prepared for that. In a way, it's a training ground, right? And I do think, like, the more I think about it, you do have some great companies coming out of accelerators. And I think it's up to companies like Impact Tech, Right. And Muruti and the China Accelerator, you see great companies coming out of China Accelerator. Magic tries to do this. Magic is slightly different, though, right, because it's government-sponsored. So there's a question as to whether, like, how great a government-sponsored um, accelerator is going to be and, like, how focused they are on one particular city or one particular country. So that's a different story. But I do think some of these accelerators actually do provide value. If nothing else, they wrap discipline around great ideas. They give great practice to people for pitching, 
pitching is a skill that can be learned, right? How can you explain to people what your business is? Remember back in, was it November or December now? I can't remember anymore. I was at um, one of those Friday night events at Maruti, and one of the reasons why they do this is to get somebody from external to their company to come in, sort of a very um, very well-respected <clears throat> venture capitalist to come in and have their companies, their startups, present to them, almost pitch to them, actually, and then just get asked questions on the spot, questions that they may or may not have anticipated. And the whole idea is that if you do this over a six-month or three-month period of time, that by the time you're done, you've heard every question, you've been put under a ton of pressure, you've given a three- or four-minute presentation, which you know how we feel about that, but you still have done it, and that's practice for when you go sit in front of an investor. And I think to a certain extent that – and I don't think it's only this, right, because the accelerators will tell you – that they're also curating the best companies that they see. They're providing a little bit, not a lot, of seed funding. And they're also organizing a lot of the access that some of these companies get to services, right? So if you look at the sort of documentation around what the accelerators provide, they'll say, well, we're partners with Google, or we're partners with, you know, Facebook, this stuff, and we're partners with, you know, pick a company. The, the reality is that all these startups could go out and create those partnerships themselves with AWS or whatever it is, right? But the accelerator organizes that for them. That's one of the services they, that they provide in kind. And I guess for some of the startups, that ends up being really powerful and really useful. And the other thing that the accelerators are really good for is that if you do a cohort that has 10 companies in it, even, even if all 10 of those companies are not amazing, they can all learn something from each other as well. And that actually ends up being really powerful too, right? So if, if two of them out of those 10 just get the next level of funding and get corporate you know, relationships and corporate partnerships out of it, and the other eight fail, and I'm not saying that that's actually a verified statistic, but even if it is, it was still worth doing, I think. And in some cases, the two ones that go in there may not have been the ones that were the most prepared when they first started, nor is it the idea that they brought in with them that would that would that would be the one that ended up being successful. And one of the conversations that we had with accelerators, whether it is Impact Tech or Muradi or Channel Accelerator, um, is that you find out that they, just like every other investor, look at the team first and the idea second. Like, can this team build something really big? And can we work with them around this idea? And if they need to iterate around that idea or even a new idea, we'll still support that team. So in that sense, I do believe that they are, you know, maybe more important than I might have originally thought. Um, and they're providing a real service as well. And again, I went to an impact tech event last week and I was very impressed actually with some of the, um, founders that were there, some of the companies that they were incubating and accelerating and also with just the entire organizational pro- um, process around that event. That's hard to do. Um, and some of the partnerships that they have, particularly with the government in Thailand, the NIA, right? That, that stuff is actually really interesting. I think. It's new, isn't it? I mean, it they haven't been new. around for long, and they, no. I mean, Impact Tech are focused on social innovation. It's exciting that now we're starting to see whether it's Impact Tech with social or on this list, look at FinLab with FinTech or even Taclo at uh, Xeroth focusing on AI. Yeah. We're yeah. seeing a real sort of niching out of accelerators as well. So that will just yield interesting results over time. Will the the specialist accelerator be a thing? For the future, we'll, we'll, we'll only you know learn by looking at the results over the coming years, right? But yeah, that excites and, and, me. Yeah, it excites me as well. And like like you've mentioned in the past, you know, we're still at this point of 
the entire ecosystem is still in a maturation process, right? So the accelerators, because they're all relatively new, right, means that we haven't really determined what their mm. impact, for lack of a better word, has been on the ecosystem yet because there haven't been enough cohorts coming out of the accelerators in, in Asia yet. Although we do see, you know, we haven't even mentioned Brink, right? So on the hardware side, we should mention yeah. that too. But just on sort of the software development side, they haven't been around long enough so that they have sort of a Y Combinator style experience. So you can look at some of the amazing companies that have come out of Y Combinator, and the idea is to work within that model or a similar model and adapt it to what's going on in Asia and try to build really big companies in that sense as well. And And just before I get to the listeners' questions, which we'll do this week, I mean, even people coming from outside of Asia into Asia, people like Read Write Labs, who focused yeah, on, yeah. you know, Internet of Things and an accelerator aimed at that, bringing the expertise from the valley into China. I mean, that's really exciting. So that's a new development entirely. So let's see how that goes. Re- listeners' questions, Michael, are you ready? <laughs> you, you sat sure. down comfortably. Okay, so I've got three questions here today. Um and, and by the way, if you have any questions about the report, you can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. Any thoughts that you have, feedback, questions you have about the data, love, flames, everything in between, just tweet us and we will do our best to answer those questions here on Asia Tech Podcast every week. Um, first question from Chaba Bondik. I think I've, whatever I pronounced that right, or I don't know, I think it's a Hungarian name. Um, from Hatch. Um, he says, where's Honk Kong? So, uh, yeah, my apologies. Uh, there's a typo on one of the slides where I put Honk Kong rather than Hong Kong. So well spotted that man, Shabba Bundik. <laughs> you win yourself a gold star. So, and a, and a shout out today. If you do find any typos, let me know as well. I'm not going to give you a full feature in the next podcast, but just let us know as well. <laughs> you know, we don't have an army of people crawling over this report. So these things slip <laughs> only, through, after, right? only after we release it. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. All right, second question. India, why is everything focused on China? Why aren't you talking about India? That's a tough one, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's that's also a valid one. You were in India recently, so how do you answer that? Right, so I went to something called the Startup Startup Investment Summit India 2017, which was held in Mumbai. Um, it was organized by a really amazing team that was there, um, and actually a couple of the founders are traveling throughout the region now just gathering more information and planning on what they're going to do in 2018. So I think one of the reasons why that there's a big focus on China as opposed to on India is that, you know, China has been this place where over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe more than that, where a massive amount of manufacturing has gone on. So manufacturing for the rest of the world, right? And those are like hard assets. You know, Apple makes a lot of its products, if not all of its products in China. Shenzhen has been sort of the place where 80% of every electronic piece of equipment gets made, some piece of it gets made in Shenzhen as well. And the way India's economy has developed, even if it's at the same GDP per capita level, has been very different. Mm. And I think a lot of it has been maybe maybe more sort of domestic development, and maybe they're 10 to 15 years behind. But a lot of it, if you look at the way that they've built stuff, like if I go to the United States and I say, name me the best Chinese university or the best Chinese sort of um, place to get educated, most people probably wouldn't know. Maybe they'd make something up, Right. But, but a lot of people in the U.S. have heard of IIT, the IIT system, so the Indian Institutes of Technology. And India made a decision, it seems to me, and you know, for anybody who's from India, please tell me when and if I'm wrong, but heavily focused on services and um, you know, providing services and technology services 
to the rest of the world, but also to themselves as well. And I think a lot of what's happened there has been missed by sort of Western investors. Well, there has been some investment in Flipkart and Sequoia actually has been very good about building a business there as well. But a lot of this sort of manufacturing that takes place in the world has happened in China. And a lot of that has gotten exported to the United States and to the rest of the world. And that's why people know more about those manufacturing businesses than they know about the sort of service businesses, the financial services business as well. Um, and the technology outsourcing that took place in India, you know, through the 1990s and early 2000s. And now what you're seeing is, remember, when I was in India, one of the things that the people there talked about was how India is and will be for the next 10 to 15 years, one of the youngest countries in the world. And I think we're just about to start hearing about it more so, right? They're gaining confidence as they get older, not old. And as they get more experienced and older, they're starting to sort of export what they're thinking and what they're doing to the rest of the world. And I actually think in 2018, you're going to hear a lot more mm. about the startup ecosystem in India. And I do think that there's been a lack of focus on it. And I think that that's one of the things that we're going to point out as 2018 goes on. So hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, great. Hopefully that answers your question. So I didn't write down the name of the person that asked that question. So silly me. Sorry. Um, you let us know. You can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. I have a question here from Andrew Bale. It doesn't say which company he's from. Thanks for the report, part one. He's from the UK somewhere because look at the email address. Um, <laughs> all very well talking about Asian mega cities and ecosystems, but where are the exits? That's a good question. That's Andrew Bale. Well done. Question of the week. How do you answer that? Where are the exits? That's often aimed at. Asia isn't as a criticism that it's all very well, but where are the exits? Come on. Okay. So, I mean, the, the answer to that is multi-threaded, right? So are you trying to build a really big transformational company or are you just trying to exit? Right. And, and that's a, it, again, it's a deep question for me. So where are the exits? Well, we're five years in or six years into the building of the tech startup ecosystem in, in Southeast Asia for sure. Mm. Right. And we talk a lot about the maturation process. And where are these companies going to exit, right? So one of the exits are Lazada. So Lazada sold for a billion dollars to Alibaba, mm -hmm. right? Job Street in Malaysia sold to Seek.com for another billion dollars. Actually, that was two or three years ago. So you're starting to see some of these big companies actually do exit-style things. But a lot of the exits where people think about from an IPO perspective, where you can list on the NASDAQ or even list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, then you're going to see fewer and fewer of those things happen. And, and I think part of the reason why is running public companies are really, really hard, like particularly in the United States, particularly with all the Sarbanes-Oxley rules that came out. And maybe the existing administration or the new administration in the United States will change some of those regulations, but that hasn't happened yet. It's hard to run a public company. And in most cases, when people think about exits, they don't think about trade sales. They do think about IPOs. Um, but again, the system hasn't really created enough companies. It hasn't been around long enough. It's like asking like, why there weren't any exits for Internet companies in the United States in 1998 or yeah. 1997. Yeah. Nobody talked about it. So let the ecosystem, again, getting back to the information arbitrage and the investment arbitrage, invest now and in a typical sort of five to seven year cycle you'll see those exits, right? And I'm not saying, like, be patient. I'm just saying understand where the market development is and then put your money into it. For those of us that have been investing in Asia for the last five or so years, we're going to start to see those exits over the next two to three years. Um, and I think it's just starting to happen. 
when you look so, at that 70 billion figure that we introduced at the top of the show, would that mean, I mean, that would be a lot of that institutional investment, right? If those institutional investors are going in, would that mean early stage investors are exiting out? Would they be buying out their stakes or diluting them down? Or would they still be, you know, holding on to small shares of these, uh, you know, even bigger companies? How would that work? Yeah, I mean, I hate to say, I hate to say like it really just depends, but it really just does, it does really just depend, sorry, on any individual sort of transaction. In in a lot of cases, like people are selling their existing shares and in, in some cases they're just getting diluted down. So I don't want to say, right. do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious because I wondered if there may be a number of exits, but there aren't exits like via IPO. You mentioned some, for example, like trade sell as acquisitions as an example, right? Right, right, That's right. That's one type of exit, but there may also be early stage investors who are exiting, but most people won't even know about it, right? Because no, they, they just won't. sold their seed investment. Yeah. So, and one of the things that I hear a lot, right? So some of your micro venture capitalists do do this a lot. We talked about it all through 2017. It's part of the market sort of microstructure that I don't really love a lot. They build a business around investing a hundred thousand dollars in this, and you know, at a million dollar valuation. Yeah. Now we want to raise, you know, a twenty-five million dollar fund. I, I don't think that that's really the scene, or the, or the sort of symptoms of a mature investment environment. And I don't think it's really a good way to build an ecosystem. I think that's more of just people taking advantage of the market microstructure. And I think that gets arbitraged out over time. And I think that people are going to stop giving them money because it's very easy to do that at the really early stages of investment. You can pump something up from a million to three million, but it's pretty hard to fake the market into 30 million to 100 million, if that makes sense, because there's more too much information on there out there and it's less risky. So, But yeah, you do see a lot of that at the early stages and not a lot of people are going to know about it. We do get questions a lot about can I know, have information on the exits? And then somebody asked us, I mean, the real exits. Hmm. So I don't consider those real. It's just my bias. All right. Well, those are great questions this week. Thank you very much, Andrew, for that last one. If you have questions about the report, any feedback, something you'd like featured on the show, you can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. You can get the latest report at asiatechpodcast.com slash Asia Matters. And here's a question which I want to ask, and I want to pen this as an a, anonymous questioner, anonymous listener. It's all very well hyping on about Asia, but this, in a way, it sounds a bit like you're putting together your own newsletter for the government of Asia, or you're putting together a pitch deck. <laughs> Obviously, we're biased, right? I mean, but there is also a bit of perspective here. It's not all one way, is it? It's not all fantastic. We're not Pollyannas of the Asian tech ecosystem. We realize there's still a way to go, and there's still work to do, isn't there? So I'm going to hand it over to you to take it away, Michael. The end of the show. You've got something for us, I believe. Well, this gets back to like that's a big surprise, right? And again, there, I may have a little bit of not full information on this, right? But so Tech in Asia posted today, Singapore logistics firm Ninja Van raises over $85 million in Series C funding. And that is just awesome, right? So for the founders, you know, Chang Wen Lai and the guys that founded Box Tan and those guys, right? It's just a, it's a fabulous thing to have it. And you just look at this story and you want to be really happy mm. about it, right? And you can go and read the story in Tech in Asia. It's super aspirational, right? Um, that they've received at least $87 million in funding and, you know, all this kind of great stuff. And yet halfway through, it goes and it tells you who the major shareholders are. And this gets, in my mind at least, this points out a little bit of the sort of immaturity of the market and 
you know, people can argue with me if they think I'm wrong. So ACRA is the Singaporean entity that keeps track of, um, you know, all the data around company listings, right, and company information, right? So when you found a company, which we've done, and you and you start that company in Singapore, you have to go to ACRA and say, here are the directors, here's the capital structure, here's the shareholders and stuff like that. So you have to do it. And as long as the information that they're giving out to Tech in Asia is correct, what it says here is that, and this is great news, right? So Ninja Van, it sounds like a startup, and maybe it is a startup. It's doing logistics, which is a space that I really believe in, um, and I think it's really necessary. And you look at some of the venture capitalists. So Monks Hill is in there, Samurai Ventures, B Capital, which is something that's run out of the United States. So I think that's the Severin um, entity. Oreos, YJ Capital is in. But you go down this list and you notice that Geopost, which is a German company, I believe, and you add up all the external investors, they own something like 78% of this company. Hmm. Which means? 78%. I know it's Series C, but even if they raise $85 million, even if they get diluted 20%, so you multiply by five, even if the valuation is $400 million, the founders only own, at least they list here, right? So it's not my opinion. This is just information that was posted here. The CEO owns 3% of the company, and the CEO owns 3% of the company. 3%. Wow. Well, they ain't going to be around a long time, unfortunately, with those kind of holdings, are they? If they ever have a fall, it doesn't out. seem like it. It just, yeah, just yeah. If they ever have a fall, right? But it just seems to me like you know, Mark Zuckerberg still owns, and he's ten years in or more in, into into Facebook. It's a public company. He still owns more than fifty percent of the shares, and definitely fifty percent of the voting shares. So he can do whatever he wants inside that company. His vision still drives that whole company. His management team that reports to him, you know, they percent Zuckerberg. But yeah, still. but the voting shares, but the voting oh, right. shares. But how is, how is that? So what, what's the difference there? I mean, you talk about immaturity of a, a tech ecosystem. What's the difference with Zuckerberg? And how could, I mean, he's got $24 billion worth of shares. Holding on to that is just phenomenal what he's achieved. Because, you know, you look at the guy and think, well, this is a guy who's, he's an easy target. He's going to get steamrolled, this guy, this hoodie. But he's still got this, you know, phenomenal um, you know, ownership of Facebook, whereas these guys have just got crowded out. How is that different? What's, what has been the process that's been different based on, you know, one has been in the Valley and one's, well, you know, in Singapore. Well, you know, some of my favorite investors, not just locally, but globally, talk about this whole concept that, you know, capital is a commodity, right? But the one thing that's not a commodity is the consultancy, right? How do you learn from the people that are giving you money? I think if you're if you're a startup founder, whether you're the COO, the CFO, the CTO, it doesn't matter to me. But when you take money from people, if you believe that money itself is a commodity, the capital is a commodity, you should also be able to take consultancy from those people that are giving you that money. That's one of the things that they're buying and that you're selling is that their connectivity to you gives you their brain as well, not just their money. But the idea that you'd want your investors to take 78% of your company may mean that the people that invested in this company kind of don't value the founders so highly, or maybe they just weren't given the right advice along the way, or maybe they have a shareholding that's not evident here. But again, just from this ACRA, the SACRA list, if Tech and Asia is reporting this properly, it just leads them to believe that that's not the case. I, I don't know why, but I just do think it's indicative of you know, again, it's not a big surprise that in the early stages of the ecosystem development, I think this company was founded in 2014. We should know that. Um, but that was, you know, almost four years ago now, three years ago at least, that maybe they just weren't given the right advice when they went out and 
sold their cap table. Because the other thing is, this falls into two categories for me, if we have full information. One is they either got massively diluted. That's not good, because it means that the advice that they were getting as they were sort of controlling their cap table was bad. Or two, that they sold some of their own shares in some kind of secondary offering or existing share sales along the way as they were doing it. And that, in some cases, maybe even worse, because like you said, what's the likelihood that they're going to stay around or that they'd want to stay around if their financial stake in the company, because their salaries can't be that high. I mean, startup founders don't take big salaries, right? They're not making $100,000 a month. The big upside for them is in the capital appreciation of the shares that they hold. But if you're holding really small shares, you know, a bunch of things happen. One is you, you get slightly disillusioned. You get less mm-hmm. motivated. But also you have less influence. You can call yourself the CEO. But if you're bored which is probably made up of some of your investors, can just vote you out as CEO and, and put somebody in. And remember, Geopost, this DPD group, is a logistics company. Mm. And so when I saw this, I thought, uh, this is really just a subsidiary now and less of a startup. Mm. But, but I think part of it is just bad advice along the way. Right. And it's not, yeah, not and like I, it won't happen in Silicon Valley, but it's less likely to happen. And that's the key difference, isn't it? Because these guys would have got better advice or more acts, more likely to have got better advice. Yeah, and I think a real mature investor, I think you're your very smart and savvy VCs don't want to take like there's an optimal amount an optimal amount of ownership in any company that a venture capitalist wants. And it's not seventy eight percent. Right, right. Because that backfires on them, right? There's a there's a marginal diminishing marginal returns because as you sure, say, because you, you don't want the the founders walking out the door. Yeah, and look, one of the famous stories, one of the famous founding stories for NinjaVan is that, you know, the founder sort of dropped out of school or, and didn't know anything about logistics, but learned it along the way. And if you think, these are smart guys, right? Mm. Very smart guys, smart operators. But if they've learned a lot along the way, what's to stop them from just going, thanks for the free education? Yeah. Good luck running NinjaVan as a subsidiary <laughs> of the DPD group. We're going to go out and start like NinjaVan 2. Exactly. The Phoenix. We're going to call it, yeah, we're going to call it like, Tan Lai Van, yeah, which is which is a combination of the CEO's name and the COO's name. And good luck with uh, the rest of that stuff. Now we know how to fund it. We know how to build it. We know logistics. We'll work with some of the big. Like I just don't understand what's going to stop them from doing that. But but I think it's more about the maturity of the whole ecosystem as a whole. Yeah. Well, so thanks for sharing that with us. Michael. Maybe down. yes. Maybe if the listeners have insight or an opinion as well, they can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. We're always welcome to listen to what our listeners have to say as well because you know we've got people out there on the ground who maybe have access to information that we don't have access to right as Absolutely. well so always good to hear two sides of the story let's talk about what's coming up a lot on the agenda in the next couple of weeks exciting stuff obviously we've got more of the report coming out um, parts three and parts four of the report are coming out we're going to talk about those in coming weeks but also something that we love dearly hitting the road packing the bags and getting out there and doing the on the on the ground thing you are traveling michael do you want to share us a little bit of an insight it's not completely firmed up no but the but the plan is this right and we've already started talking to a couple of people about this and that is the plan is that in the first week of february is it the second really full week in february what we want to do is we want to start doing roundtables right we want to sit down and do recorded shows where we talk to an angel investor, maybe a venture capitalist, a startup founder, 
somebody who does legal work, but just people in the ecosystem in each one of these cities that we talk about. You know, hopefully we'll get Bangkok done, which should be relatively straightforward. We want to go to Singapore as well and have an, a, an Asia Matters roundtable there. And then we want to blow this out to the rest of the region. We did a lot of traveling last year. We want to add more cities to the travel that we're doing this year. Hopefully we'll get to Ho Chi Minh and to other cities in Jakarta as well. We've been speaking to people sort of quietly in each one of these places. And as we finalize the plans around that, we think these roundtables are going to be really powerful ways to get people involved, as we talk about, in conversations about the ecosystem, as opposed to entertaining them with shows like Shark Tank. Right. What's the conversation that you want to have? Give us a... Well, just, well what the conversation is, what have you learned, right? So yeah. if if you're building a legal structure, if you're building a cap table, if you've taken investment, if you have a management structure, if you want to go regional, all of these things, if you want to expand into Asia, let's say you're a company that is just building an office in Asia, that whole concept of Asian expansion, mm. right, which we know has multiple meanings, in the context of Asia Matters, what are the issues that you've been addressing? What are the solutions that you've found what, who are the people that you've leaned on to do that? Who are the best providers of you know certain services? Those types of things that people don't talk about in public forums and that you can't get when you go to an event that has 5,000 people at it. Let's get those conversations on the record and then let's get out there and talk to those people and find out what they are. I think that's going to end up being really powerful. I think it's going to be something that everybody wants to participate in and we can only have sort of five or six people at any one time doing it. Yep. That's all coming up in February. Exciting Love the idea of getting out there and, you know, having that conversation with people in the ecosystem. And you're so right, you know, in, in the whole idea of knowledge share and networking, this is all about storytelling, isn't it? Getting people involved in that story and that conversation. It's so much more powerful as a learning tool than simply sitting down and somebody teaching you or lecturing you, right? People want to know real stories. People want to know real experiences. And that's what we want to share. That's the whole purpose of the roundtable. And Michael will be out there. Southeast Asia awaits his presence. And next week, we're going to talk more about the Asia Matters Report, part three coming out, asiatechpodcast.com slash Asia Matters. If you want to go and grab a copy of the latest report, you can go and download it for free. It's all there for you. Hundreds and hundreds of slides until your belly will ache digesting all that, <laughs> <laughs> that insight and data more just coming out your ears and if you if you're putting together a pitch deck or you're putting together a marketing presentation you go and grab all this stuff and copy it use it share it do what you like it's all there for you to use that's why it's there michael thank you so much for your insights this week thank you graham we'll be back next week you can find out more about us at asiatechpodcast.com we'll catch you next week you've been listening to asia tech podcast Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.